Pray with me, please. Amazing grace. It really is amazing. Your grace has reached to us through the gospel. Saving wretches like us. We were spiritually dead. Now that we're spiritually alive. We were lost. Now we're found. We were spiritually blind, but now we spiritually see. The eyes of our hearts have been opened. And I pray now, Lord, that as we, your people, encounter your word, I pray that you would encounter us. Lord, we're going to see that Paul has gone through a lot of struggles, a lot of problems, brokenhearted. Lord, we can all identify with that. So I pray that you would bring your comfort. I pray that you'll bring your peace. I pray, Lord, that you'll bring us your power, that we might indeed live the life you've called us to live. We're going to thank you and praise you for what you will do. May your spirit be your teacher, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, author Jim Collins interviewed Admiral Jim Stockdale, the highest-ranking officer in the Hanoi Hilton prisoner of war camp during the height of the Vietnam War. Those who are a bit older, we know what that is, you know. Um, Vietnam was, was the thing back then. You young guys don't have a clue, but we, uh, we kind of understand here. Regarding the prisoner of, camp, a prisoner of war camp, Collins asked Stockdale, who were the ones that didn't make it out of that camp? And Stockdale said, that's easy. It was the optimists. And then Collins says, optimists? I don't understand. Why didn't they make it out? He said, well, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out by Christmas. And Christmas came and went. Then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter. And Easter came and went. And then Thanksgiving, and then Christmas again. And they died of a broken heart. Ever been there? Situations that you face that are the gut-wrenching kind? You feel as though you're in a room with no exit. Your back is against the wall. And then the wall in front of you is closing in on you. You know that you need to do something. No escape. You must act. And you find yourself in a lose-lose situation. Well, today we're going to see Paul in this kind of situation as well. See, he clung fast to the Lord. He was in Ephesus. But he knew something that there were some new kids on the block, so to speak, at the church in Corinth. And they were doing a very, very good job at undermining the authority that Paul had. And the church was, on the whole, beginning to go down a slippery slope into some place that they should not be going. We were reminded last Lord's Day that Jesus Christ gave Paul divine authority to begin a church in Corinth, the most wicked town in the Roman Empire. They had a lot of issues. But the genuine followers of Christ, even though they had those issues, they still clung to the true gospel, the authorized gospel, the only gospel that there really, really is. But a shift began to take place in the church in Corinth. False teachers came to town, very persuasive, mesmerizing, powerful, dynamic. They pulled out all the stops and they use worldly wisdom to put forth their brand of good news. 
They seem to make a whole lot of sense. A whole lot more sense than this Christ and him crucified foolishness of a gospel that Paul had preached. So much so that the believers in Corinth were tempted to turn their backs on the one true gospel and opt for a different one offered by those who had a new kind of authority. In their day and in ours, there was and is only one true gospel, but many false gospels. And we're going to talk about the false gospels in our day in a little bit. But naturally, this undermining of Paul's authority and the preaching of a different gospel got the apostles' attention. He had to drop what he was doing in Ephesus and pay an unexpected visit to Corinth sooner than expected. See, Paul was going to visit them, but he had to come sooner to take care of an issue. See, the apostle dealt with the people that he had to deal with, but we're not told how he dealt with them. And then he returned to that open door of ministry that he had in, ex, in, in, in Ephesus. And as he said in, at the end of uh, 1 Corinthians, he said, there are many adversaries, but there's a wide open door for ministry. But he could not stop thinking and praying for his beloved Corinthians after he visited. Souls were at stake. And as we know from Paul's B.C. days, he could have had a volcanic temper. I can imagine Paul going in there and verbally ripping the false teachers apart. The Corinthian Christians probably never saw Paul so animated. And and giving a false gospel is truly heinous. And Paul said, I'll have none of it. So now as Paul went back to Ephesus, what to do? He was resuming his ministry there with a broken heart. But what about all this spiritual carnage that was there in the wake of Paul having visited the Corinthians? See, were three options that Paul could could have engaged in uh, concerning how he was going to handle this. First, Paul could stay in Ephesus. He could pour out his prayer to the Lord and just weep before the Lord over the situation. Or he could actually then return to Corinth again quickly and then deal with this issue face-to-face. Or he could write a letter. And he opted for option number three. And even though he did this, he was attacked for writing this letter. But this is the background. Let's go to our passage for today. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 4. And today we're going to see Paul begin to deal with his broken heart over the Corinthian believers. Now, as we know, chapter and verse designations are not inspired. And so we're going to go over chapter 1 and go into chapter 2 because the thought doesn't end at the end of chapter 1. So we're going to go again through the first four verses of chapter 2. So let me give us the lay of the land today, where we're going with this. Now, I want to highlight three things in this passage. First, Paul's testimony of how the Lord, through the true gospel, changed both him and the Corinthians. He was reminding them of this. Second, we will see how Paul dealt with the accusation of, as the ESV puts it, the vacillation of his travel plans. We're going to say, hey, you know, okay, Paul had to change his travel plans. So what? We're going to see there's a whole lot more to it than that. And third, let's take a look at how Paul handled his broken heart over his threat of a hostile gospel in the midst of a church, a gospel that cannot save them. It was a painful thing for Paul. 
because these were real people, both his friends in Corinth and also the enemies of the gospel. Even they, too, were made in the image of God. And my prayer is that the Lord is going to open our hearts today for this passage, because this passage really speaks to us today. Because, again, there, there are false gospels that we need to refute, and there's a true gospel that we need to defend. And because we're going to be bouncing around a little bit here, we're not going to go through verse by verse on, a, on just like one after another. Uh, we're going to bounce around a little bit. And so I want us to read the entire passage and then kind of get into it. So, uh, so read along with me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 4. For our boast is this, Paul writes, the testimony of our conscience that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. For we are not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand, and I hope that you will fully understand, just as you did partially understand us, that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace. I wanted to visit you on my way to Macedonia and to come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Travel plans. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much anguish and affliction of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know of the abundant love that I have for you. Now, there's a lot in here. Uh, we're not going to cover everything. But again, I want to cover some of these things that, that are uh, very important, extremely important, these highlights here. As I mentioned, let's look first at Paul's testimony of how the Lord, through the true gospel, changed him and the Corinthians. See, Paul reminded them of who he was and how he lived his life before them, in front of them. Paul gave a testimony of his clear conscience and describing his behavior as a Christian and as an apostle, the one whom Christ sent. 
And Paul lived his life this way, showing simplicity, literally holiness, also showing godly sincerity or having pure motives and not with earthly wisdom, but with the grace of God. That's how Paul presented himself and and, uh, behaved himself. Now, Paul's life was not showy. It was not flashy. There wasn't a whole lot of impression to be made when Paul walked into the room with someone he had never met before. But Paul did not live his life to impress others. Let's review Paul's view of life that I introduced you to last week, those who were here. Remember that word I taught you? Theocentric, exactly. Theocentric. And what is that? God is at the very center of his life. See, when it came to making an impression in the world, it was only the Lord who he had in mind to impress. People faded into the background. Gaining the Lord's approval was the only thing that he wanted. It was not great talent, but deep godliness and holiness that Paul wanted to put on display. And it was and is. These things cannot be imitated. See, we can put on a good show, but these kinds of things cannot be manufactured. It's got to be the Lord working in a person's life to do that. We find another display of character that Paul showed the Corinthians, and it was love. But it was love expressed in much affliction and anguish and many tears over this difficult situation that he found himself in and the Corinthians as well. See, because let's not forget that about 20 years before he wrote this, Paul hated non-Jewish people. Or at the very least, he treated them with disdain. Now, a Jewish leader, his daily prayer would be something like this. God, I thank you that I'm not a woman or a Gentile. He hated Gentiles. And guess who the Corinthians were predominantly? Gentiles. Now, the Lord, through the gospel, thoroughly changed Paul. He completely transformed him from being a man who hated all those who were not like him to being someone that he would actually weep over, shed tears of anguish over. And think about your life. How has God's gospel changed you over the years? Or even over the days if you haven't been walking with the Lord very long? I'm sure that you can say with me that any hardship is worth it. It's it's worth enduring just so that the Lord can do his work in our lives. You know, the, the sweet fruit of holiness and of purity and of clear conscience and of love. These are the things that we want in our lives, aren't they? See, this is what the Lord through the gospel produced in Paul. And as a result, he was able to humbly and boldly proclaim these things to the Corinthians of what his life was really like. But now let's take a brief look at Paul's reminder to the Corinthians of what he did in their lives. First notice Paul's confidence that they will stand before the Lord one day and marvel and rehearse at all that the Lord had done in the relationship of Paul to the Corinthians and of the Corinthians to Paul. Their mutual relationship to one another. Isn't that going to be a great day, my brothers and sisters? Think about this. We're all going to stand before the Lord one day to give an account of our lives. Now, when we think about that, what's the first thing we think of? Uh (laughs) Uh-oh, you know, I'm really going to get it here. But think about this. The Lord is also going to reward us. 
for the good deeds that we've done, that he has wrought through us, especially regarding ministry in other people's lives. Who are the significant mentors in your life that you will give the Lord praise for on that day that you stand before him? Who will you be able to give the Lord praise for in those whom you personally help to become more like Jesus on that day? As I mentioned before, God has called all of us to make disciples, has he not? And so let me again give another shameless plug. After the service is over, come and involve yourself in our our brown bag lunch so that we can talk about disciple making, so that we can all be encouraged to do this. See, God gave the Corinthian believers and us promises that are trustworthy and true. Why? Because God himself is trustworthy and true. Let's look again, verses 21 and 22, chapter 1. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ. He has anointed us, who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. The Holy Spirit is the gift of God to us. See, God gave the Holy Spirit to us as his people. It's a guarantee of his faithfulness to deliver on every one of the promises that he made to his people. See, God has justified his people through the gospel. He's declared us in a forever right standing with him. And what that means is that we've been saved from the penalty of sin forever. We don't have to worry about going to hell, in other words. He's justified us. We're also being saved right now from the power of sin in this life as he works in us to make us more like Jesus. That's called sanctification. And we will be saved from the very presence of sin when we get to the other side. And that's called glorification. And I say hallelujah to that. Glory to God for these things. But there's more. God enables the Corinthians and us to stand firm in our trust, in our faith in the Lord. It's also God's desire for his people to experience the fullness of joy as Paul shares with them this truth in verse 24. And the wonderful thing about this truth in verse 24 is that joy in this place is not the only place that joy is mentioned. Even in the Old Testament, God desires to have the fullness of joy for his people. Psalm 1611 says that in the Lord's presence is the fullness of joy. And at God's right hand, there are pleasures forever. That's Old Testament. New Testament, joy as well. No wonder Paul could say in verse 20 that all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. It glorifies the Lord when we express our hope in our good God's faithfulness, because that's what we do when we say amen. So be it. That's what we mean when we say amen. Not about you, but this right here is rich stuff. I just stop right here and just bask in all that the Lord has given us. What about you? But we need to go on, though, and we need to talk about another point in this passage. Is that how Paul... Uh, dealt with his accusation of vacillating over the change of his travel plans. A simple thing, a minor thing we might think. Small matter. Of course, okay, Paul had to change his travel plans. So what? Who cares? See, Paul loved them. 
He wasn't going to abandon them. He already proved that by paying them an unexpected visit to defend them, to beat off the sheep, uh, the wolves in sheep's clothing, to give them the true gospel, to remind them of that. And so he had to change the timing of his visit. And so, again, if we were there, what would we say? So what? Who cares? Just as long as you're here, Paul, right? Wouldn't we say that? Now, I'm sure that would have been the case if, if the false teachers had not been there and infiltrated the church in Corinth. Obviously, Paul was accused of not caring about them. So how can Paul care about you, they would say. You know, he has made a promise to you, and he doesn't follow through. He's talking out of both sides of his mouth is what they're saying here. And some were beginning to believe it. Now, this is probably why Paul brought up the issue of vacillating in his plans. But let me point out two truths here briefly pertaining to this charge. And the first one is Paul's theocentric view of life, as I mentioned before. Look again at verses 17 to 20. He says, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make my plans according to the flesh, ready to say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? As surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For God, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Sylvanus, Timothy, and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. What is Paul saying here in light of the charge? First, remember how we just saw Paul describe the testimony of his conscience, that he simply did not live his life according to the flesh any longer. Rather, he lived his life by the grace of God. Remember, he said in 1 Corinthians that Paul said, those who are born again have access to divine wisdom. In short, Paul simply highlighted the fact that he lived his life in faithfulness to the Lord. So why in the world would he, would he want to become unfaithful to those he cared about so much? Could it be that the charge of the false teachers made about Paul was because they themselves were guilty of vacillating in their plans? Because how often do we see this in our day? In Romans chapter 2, for example, Paul says that when we judge self-righteously, what do we do? We're guilty of the same thing that we're judging. Isn't that right? Have you seen this? Have you done this? That's why a person can see a flaw so clearly in other people's lives. Why? Because it's a reality in their own life. Is that amen or oh me? <laughs> see, it's that log and speck thing that the Lord is talking about here. And this, again, is where Paul's theocentric view of life becomes crystal clear. He's not only letting the charge roll off his back, but he was able to actually exalt the Lord in this, his faithfulness. In essence, Paul said, all right, go ahead and accuse falsely. doesn't matter. But we are here to say that all of God's promises are yes. See, even if you think that we're being unfaithful, God will never be that way. In other words, because the Lord was absolutely central in Paul's life, rather than take offense at the false accusation, he was able to turn that accusation around and glorify the Lord's faithfulness in the midst of all of this. And what a lesson for us as well. Again, Paul allowed, as it were, the accusation to stand. He didn't get defensive over the charge. Did you notice this? However, what Paul did defend was the truth of his words regarding Christ and God's faithfulness. 
how we need to find wise ways to lift up the Lord in the midst of our conversations with others. But that requires that the Lord be central in our lives before we enter into those conversations. Isn't that true? To try to get the Lord central in your life as you're in the midst of the heat of the battle, so to speak, is too late. We got to have the Lord central in our lives before we enter into those things. Otherwise, what's going to happen? We're going to get tempted to take the bait. We're going to get tempted to get defensive, and we're going to blow our witness. We got to have the Lord theocentric view of life in our own lives from day to day. Second truth I see here is that Paul's authenticity regarding the charge. He was falsely accused, probably in reference to his motives. Paul didn't care about us. But is this true? Not by a long shot. Look again, verses 22 or 23 and 24. It was to spare you, he says, that I refrain from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy to help you stand firm in your faith. The short answer of all this is that Paul was convinced that should he return to them face to face, he was going to more, do more damage to their fellowship. He may win the battle. He may get rid of those false teachers. But he may lose the war, so to speak. But he may lose his relationship even with them. See, just think about this, though. Thinking about this in his own mind caused him a lot of anxiety, a lot of problems, a lot of pain and anguish. His desire for them was their stability and their joy in the Lord. See, Paul was not the kind of pastor who wanted a cult following. You ever heard of those kind of guys? In essence, he wanted them to stand on their own, on their joy-filled foundation of the gospel that Jesus offers and that Jesus gives. Remember what he said in 1 Corinthians. He says, it's not me to whom you owe allegiance to. It's not me to whom you owe your life to. It's the Lord who you owe your life to. See, the last thing Paul wanted was the church of Paul. This was the church of God in Corinth, not the church of Paul in Corinth. And as he said before, Paul was only a servant. He was a fellow worker with God when it came to the ministry he had with the Corinthians. So what do we have so far? Paul's testimony of how the Lord, through the true gospel, transforms people to his glory. He dealt with the charge of vacillating over the charge uh, of his change of travel plans. And now let's take a look at how Paul handled his broken heart over this threat of a hostile gospel in Corinth. How Paul struggled, didn't he? He did what he knew he had to do, though. He had to fend off Satan's wolves, feeding Christ's flock with a so-called new gospel. It was fresh. It was exciting. But it was deadly poison. And Paul was livid. Dropping what he was doing. He was doing significant work in Ephesus. And he probably arrived with guns ablaze to defend the gospel and his authority. And he no doubt had it out with the false teachers. Now, I can imagine him going in like a spiritual Rambo. What do you think? He was taking no prisoners. And after he did that, he left. You know how in the movies, right? You got carnage all around you, then all of a sudden you got the star of the show walking off the stage. But Paul took no pleasure in this. 
There are hints in this letter that Paul expected the Corinthian believers to even take up for him in his defense. But apparently, they didn't even do that. They were so influenced by these false teachers. And so Paul left Corinth, heartbroken. And obviously, there was a problem between Paul and the Corinthians. And though he could have returned in person, he decided to write the letter. He refers to this letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, And I wrote as I did, so that when I, might, when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. See, he wanted them to stand up for him, but they didn't. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know of the abundant love I have for you. Can't you feel Paul's anguish in this? He had to do something about the issue. It would not be pleasant. And even when he went back to Ephesus, Paul had one thing on his mind. It was a clear and present danger of the Corinthians turning to a false gospel and away from the Lord. It consumed him. It was a strongly worded letter, he wrote. Perhaps worded a bit too strongly. And Paul will say later on in 2 Corinthians that he even regretted writing it. The Corinthians may have gotten the wrong impression about it. For after all, Paul was falsely accused over something petty like changing travel plans. Can you imagine the words that were spoken about Paul in his absence at Corinth? But Paul loved him dearly. He didn't want a broken relationship with them. And doubtless the parchment that Paul wrote this letter on that's now lost was tear-stained. And when he finished the letter, he gave it to Titus, who gave it to the Corinthians. And we're going to find out later in this letter how the Corinthians received that letter. Again, we don't have that letter now. We just have First and Second Corinthians. And so here was Paul, a broken-hearted pastor. He did what he had to do, though he did not enjoy it. And through many tears and much anguish. And here's a lesson for all of us as Christians. Sometimes we must confront our spiritual siblings. And it's not easy, is it? It's painful to do so. Indeed, if we cared about others, confronting them is going to be painful. Because it's the relationship there. But it ought to be done, even though it's painful. See, the Lord commands this. Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17, he says, If your brother sins against you, we're talking about blatant sinning. We're not talking about hurt feelings or whatever. We're talking about sinning against the Lord and against one another, actual sin. If he sins against you, go and tell him your fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, what happens? Take two or three others or one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, what's next? Tell it to the church. And if they refuse even to listen to the church, treat this person like a Gentile and a tax collector. In other words, disfellowship yourself from that individual. And so Paul confronted the false teachers. He wept over their situation. Weeping over the issue and over the people is good and it's right to do. The absence of any pain should raise red flags. If we enjoyed confronting, that's a problem, you think? 
Because as we know, every person we confront in the body of Christ is a brother or sister. The golden rule applies here. As you would want someone to approach you if it became necessary for someone to approach you about whatever it is, then you need to approach that person in the same way. The issue is one of love, seeking to restore them, not wanting to blast them. And so let me turn the corner and bring into focus what made Paul so upset. False gospel, false teachers, bringing to the Corinthians something that would kill them spiritually. See, Paul's enemies were those who were convinced that in order for a Gentile to become a Christian, what do they have to do? They become Jewish. After all, the Jews are God's chosen people. Paul carried, called these carriers of a false gospel false prophets, deceitful workers, Satan's servants. Is that politically correct speech today? I don't think so. Paul chided the Corinthians that they readily accepted these false prophets who brought them another gospel. He'll tell us later on in the letter. That was the line in the sand for Paul, a false gospel. The souls of the Corinthians were at stake, for there is no other gospel that saves other than the true gospel. For lack of time, let me just mention to you, the letter to the Galatians talks about this thing in detail. And the, the, the absolutely horrifying indictment it is when someone believes a false gospel and someone gives a false gospel, it is horrific. It is terrifying from, from God's perspective. In short, even though Paul had a wide open door of ministry in Ephesus, he believed that it was important enough to drop what he was doing and then set the Corinthians straight because this was so important. And for a few minutes, I want to raise for us and remind us of the false gospels in our day. And I see three of them. See, these false gospels are, are promoted by false prophets today. These gospels have elements of truth in them, but they are deadly nonetheless. There are many who cling to these very gospels. They're popular ones. But it's horrifically, it's horrific. And when they stand before the Lord on that day, those who cling to these false gospels, Jesus will tell them, I never knew you. Depart from me. See, we, we live in this life. It's like, okay, you know, I've got years and years and years. One day we're all going to stand before the Lord. And those who adhere to these false gospels, they're going to hear from the Lord. Depart from me. You're not part of the family. I don't know you. First gospel is what used to be called the social gospel. I want to say it, it, it used to be called social gospel, but is now referred to in so many ways and so many words as the social justice movement in the church. See, the social gospel from the get-go was an application of Christian principles to the problems that came along with bad working conditions during the Industrial Revolution. That's where it began. And so they wanted to take these things and apply the ethics of Jesus with them and to this. The emphasis of the social gospel is the betterment of people overall with equal rights for all. Does that sound familiar today? And the ethics of Jesus, as I mentioned, is its foundation. The social gospel, believe it or not, was made very popular in the book 
in his steps. You ever read it? In his steps. In other words, what would Jesus do? That's the idea here. Social gospel. If you think that the social gospel has a lot in common with Marxism, you would be correct. And the bottom line is simply this, that the social gospel tries to make Jesus, tries to use Jesus to make the world a better place. That's what the social gospel's goal is. There's a second false gospel, which is the prosperity gospel. And we've heard of this. The idea here is that it is God's will for God's children to have their material and their physical desires met. If we have enough faith, we will get what we desire is what they tell us. But to be fair, the prosperity gospel people that will say we are blessed in order to be a blessing. And we know there's a lot that, that we can say about there's a lot that I can say, but the clock is so unforgiving, so unkind. So I'm going to move on. But let me make this bottom line comment. The prosperity gospel tries to use Jesus to make our lives materially prosperous. A third false gospel is a mouthful. Moralistic therapeutic deism. Ever heard that before? Moralistic therapeutic deism. deism. This false gospel appeals in large measure to the millennials and younger. So please allow me to quote a very smart man. His name is Kevin Van Hooser in relation to this. And here's what he says. Moralistic therapeutic deism, or MTD for short, is not a bad acronym for a socially transmitted disease. If those who hold this faith could boil it down as a statement of what they believe, it might go something like this. I believe in a creator God who orders and watches over life on earth. I believe that God wants people to be good and act nice to one another. This is the moralistic part. I believe that the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. That's the therapeutic part. I believe that God is not involved in my life except when I need him to solve a problem for me. I believe that good people go to heaven and that almost everyone is good or at least nice. God is watching from a distance is the deism part. And the bottom line with this false gospel is that it tries to use Jesus to make me feel happy and well-adjusted. All three false gospels totally fail to give us what we really need, salvation and true love, salvation from sin. See, all three false gospels are focused in this world and in this life and with me. All three are ultimately self-centered. Like, I don't like the uneasiness of the world because sinners live like sinners. Therefore, social gospel. I don't like, what, I don't like not having what I need and feel deprived of things. Prosperity gospel. I just want to be happy to know that God is there when I need him. MTD, socially transmitted disease. With that said, though, all three false gospels do have a ring of truth with them. For example, when Jesus returns and sets up his kingdom, what will that look like? Will the world be a better place when Jesus sets up his kingdom? Yes, social gospel, as it were, the results of, of that. When Jesus sits on his throne, we will have everything that we need and want as God defines needs and wants. There again, prosperity. And with Jesus reigning over the earth, we will be happy and well-adjusted, won't we? But in order to get there, we all need God to save us here and not indulge our sin. 
We need to be prepared for the next life while knowing what our Creator wants of us in this life. The only true gospel of Jesus Christ and Him crucified is what saves us from ourselves. That's the only gospel. The King died in our place and He rose again. And the true gospel's goal is 1 Timothy 1.5. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And like Paul, the Lord has given every one of us his authority to preach the true gospel. And no other, by the way. Don't let anyone tell you that you don't have that right. No government official. No family member, no human being has the right to tell any of us that we cannot share this true gospel. And so let's leave that right here. And let's return to what the author Jim Collins said at the beginning of the message. Why did those in the Hanoi Hilton die of a broken heart? The soldiers built themselves up with a false hope. And the hope can only be shattered so many times before you lose hope. But in Christ... We are more than conquerors, are we not? For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our amen to God for His glory. And so now let's trust the Lord of the promise, for all His promises are yes. May we thoroughly know, faithfully live, and vigorously defend the only true gospel that saves. May we do what it takes to help our brother Help our sister live a life worthy of the gospel, even though it will require a broken heart at times. And when we stand before the Lord, we're going to be able to rejoice at how the Lord used us in his life, in her life, for his honor and glory. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, these are real issues. These are real things that we talked about today. Timeless truths thousands of years old. We thank you for the Holy Spirit living within us. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you, Lord, that love requires that sometimes we must confront. And we also know, Lord, that the only gospel that's true is the the only gospel that saves. Help us, Lord, to never try to use you as if we can, to, to use you to make our lives better. Lord, you're the king. You call the shots. You know what's best. Help us, Lord, to submit ourselves to you. Help us, Lord, to preach faithfully this gospel, even if it is unpopular. Because it is unpopular, it never has been popular. Help us, Lord, to live it. Help us, Lord, to love you and to serve you. And to serve you because you've loved us first. Thank you now, Lord, for this time as we turn our attention to our our giving and our singing. I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to respond to you in ways that will be pleasing to you. Thank you, Lord, for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.